today mainly we're going to be looking at, uh, in more depth, at, at some of the things we were looking at last week. For example, the fall. You know, we've got to understand sinfulness. We've got to understand that we're fallen. And we've got to understand something about the will. Okay? So I'm going to concentrate a little bit on the will tonight. And uh, for that, you'll need to get your thinking caps on a little bit. I'm going to try not to get too deep or anything like that, but just to speak about what the will is. Okay? Um, and then we'll, uh, we'll kind of shoot off from, the, from there. Uh, let's see, what else did I, oh yeah, there, I've, I also have an illustration tonight. So let's have a, an opening word of prayer, shall we? Thanks for all coming out in the ra- rain tonight. <laughs> I appreciate that. Father, thank you for the rain and thank you for, uh, your goodness to us. Uh, even on a grey day, Father, we uh, where we can't see very far, uh, we know that uh, you reign in heaven above, you reign on earth beneath, and uh, Heavenly Father, uh, there seems to be a great distance between where you are and where we are, but there isn't, because you are where we are, we, you are within us as your creatures, as your people, and uh, therefore I want... Lord, our real teacher to be your Holy Spirit. And I want your real teacher to be the scriptures. Each of us, Father, are different, so uh, we will, uh, uh, we will have to counsel as the kind of people that you've made us. But uh, we must counsel around the truth. We must counsel with it, trusting in it and applying it and helping people to see it. And this is what this uh, course is all around uh, about so i pray your blessing on everyone here and uh, those that are maybe traveling i pray that you would bring here safely and uh, we just give this time over to you now in the name of jesus amen all right i know it was gilbert yeah i know i thought i had my eyes shut but i thought okay that's gilbert <laughs> well at least i know he's there all right. Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, you know what? I don't have them because I'm disorganized. Yeah. So, but it's not. It's really kind of straightforward uh, this week. Okay. We're not kind of moving too far down the list. All right, so before I start, was there anyone went away last week with a burning question that they thought, well, I wish I'd have asked that question, or I wish I'd have just kind of prodded him a little bit about that. So is there, is there anybody who wants to do that? Or are we good? We're all fine. <laughs> okay, good, all right. So let's, uh, let's remind ourselves of the fall of man and its effects. The fall of man and its effects. It's a simple story, isn't it? Um, the simple story is that God gave man, and in this case particularly, I mean the, the male, Adam, gave him a specific 
prohibition, something not to do. He could do a, a whole bunch of things, but there's just one thing he couldn't do, and that's eat from a particular tree. Now, obviously, that tree was put into the garden by God. Okay? So that's one thing that you need to understand. Okay? God put the tree in the garden. If he didn't want Adam to eat from the tree, why on earth did he put it in the garden? I mean, then he wouldn't have eaten from it, and we'd all be be hunky-dory today. But, you know, we wouldn't. There's there's a specific reason that the... the, uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil was put there and that was uh, i think relational it had to do with the relationship between uh god and the human being that he had made because a human being is not like a dog okay if you know anything about dogs okay you can kind of get into their heads you know dog psychology you can be the leader all right and they'll follow you around, you know, and they'll basically do what you want them to do. If they think they're the leader, then they're not going to follow you around, you know. They they will go off and do what they want to do. Um, so it would have been easy, wouldn't it? Just you know, train up Adam, you know, sit, you know, just just get him to to come, sit, lay, you know, whatever, eat when you say eat. God could have done that, but not really with the kind of individual that he'd made. Because he didn't make just the dog. He made a human being to have a special relationship with. Uh, an intelligence, an imagination, uh, an ability to, to um, think upon everything that he saw, everything that he heard, uh, the experiences of everyday life, to accumulate knowledge, uh, to uh, progress in that knowledge. And, of course, an emotional being whose emotions were actually in the right kind of situation before the fall. They were doing really what emotions should do. And uh, mean, meaning that he was a, a, a whole being functioning in the way that he was designed to function. Of course, Eve comes along and Eve uh, completes the man. So he's he's completely uh, taken care of there, and a great history is about to unfold. I mean, it's all set up beautifully by God, and the only thing that Adam needs to do is not eat of something. That Satan, who is allowed into the garden by God, um, after God has given specific instructions to Adam, and those instructions have been passed on to the woman, we know that because of what the woman did with the instructions. Okay? She omitted words, she put words in. Alright? And then Satan also reminded her of a word that she'd omitted. So we know that she knew, okay? But um, God there was trying to deepen the relationship, deepen the trust, um, between, and deepen that, that uh, love that there was, because love rejoices in truth, between our first parents and himself. That was what basically was going on there. 
The serpent deceived Eve. Eve did not deceive the man. The man knew what he was doing. Okay? He was willful and he put the words of the woman before the words of God. And that was the problem. Actually, that is the problem. That's the problem today. That's the problem with me. That's the problem with you. That we put the words of ourselves or the words of man before the words of God. Um, and then we've got to turn that around so that the word of God has power over our lives in the way that it ought to have. The gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Bible, the gift of the new birth is uh, God's way of rectifying that in a fallen world. But yet, so it's possible because of that. And that's very important for you to understand. It's possible because of that. But it's not easy because we are in this fallen world, because we are not glorified, because there are still the remnants of sin within us, because there are still all these voices that are not God around us telling us to do certain things, luring us by sight and sound uh, into uh, a, if not an anti-God stance, then just at least putting God to the side a little bit so we can kind of take the center stage. So the fall was a specific event, okay? It actually happened. It only had to happen once. And if you think, well, you know, that's not fair because, after all, if I'd have been there, things would have been different. No, they wouldn't, you know? You'd have been Adam. Do you see? You'd have been Adam. That's what that deal was all about. And uh, you would have fallen too. <clears throat> In Genesis 2.8, we have these words. God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. This garden was man's habitation. It was an incredible place. It was suited for man in, in every way. Um, Eden itself means delight. That's what the word means. And that means it was a wonderful place. But can you imagine what the uh, garden was like? Specifically made for God? The whole world was very good. That's the way that it was created. And so it doesn't matter how far he would have pushed north, south, east, west. Uh, he would have found an incredible tranquility, an incredible glory all around him in the original creation. By the way, uh, there are Bible teachers now today, conservative evangelical Bible teachers, who teach that um, only the Garden of Eden was... Uh, a beautiful place. In fact, some of them don't even teach that. Some of them just teach the garden was the, a beautiful place and there was violence and death and discord outside the garden. Okay? Why do they do that? They do that because they all, they hold to an old earth view 
which means there has to be death, do you see? Um, that's an example, and there's some good men that do that, but they're just wrong, wrong, wrong. Uh, that's an example of pushing out the word of God to bring in a little of the world's thinking, you know? They're listening to science, so they're going to they'll push what the Bible says and seems to say very clearly a little bit to the side, so they can create a gap for that teaching to come in. All right, then they'll convince themselves that it's okay, and it seems harmless. And you know, for them, it might be harmless, but that is exactly the same. Um, process as allowing lies into your life. It's exactly the same process as allowing you know, sinful thoughts into your life, whatever those sinful thoughts might be. We, it, it's the same process. And so we have to be on our guard about that. And, and uh, um, we won't do it this day, but, but next week. I really want to push the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, in this course. It's, it's really a key doctrine. So God had prepared this garden and he put man in it. It's all, it's all good. It's all great, you know. Um, but it doesn't last very long. It lasts a chapter. Um, <laughs> and Adam flouts the rule of God. And plunges mankind into sin. Uh, the image of God is still there. Uh, and there are very clear passages in scripture that prove that the image of God is still there. For example, James 3, 9. Uh, with it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, the tongue, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So we're still made in God's image, but... Um, we are sinners, and we're always going to be sinners. Uh, I don't mean in the what we might call the technical sense. If you're a Christian, the Bible doesn't call you a sinner anymore, okay? But you are. I mean, you, you don't need me to tell you that. You are, okay? You're still a dirtbag, okay? And uh, it's good to see yourself that way so you won't be uh, too... Tempted towards self-esteem or, you know, if you're tempted to pride, hopefully, you know, that will bring you down to earth again when you remind yourself of the truth and, uh, help you to listen more to God and depend on God than, than on yourself or the will. So man is basically now in revolt toward God. And one of the teachings that I did in the biblical theology course was to try to show uh, people that the default of the human being, whether they're lost or saved, the default setting. You know what the default setting is? It's the thing they come uh, that something comes back to when it's ordinarily functioning. Okay. So it's the setting that, that it, it comes to. So if, I can't even think of an example here because I'm not mechanically minded at all. Um, 
But say that you, you want to raise the temperature a little bit, you know, you press a few buttons and after an hour or so, it's going to come back to its default setting, you know, whatever that is. Our default setting is this. That's your default setting as a Christian. Okay? So unless you, <laughs> unless you, um, raise the temperature, press the button, you know, go to scripture, pray, remind yourself of who God is, remind yourself of who you are, your default setting will be to be independent of God. To do things independently. All right? To not rely on God. We, what, what does faith do? What does faith do? What's its, you know, the world thinks that faith, if you listen to the new atheists and so on, they think that, that faith is believing something that isn't true. Okay? And they're all evolutionists. Um, and all, you know, they all believe that something came out of nothing. Talking about believing in something that's not true, but, uh, but is that what faith is? Think about what faith is when you look about, look at this. What's faith designed to do? What does it do? It trusts, and in trusting you are doing what? Yes, do you see? Yeah, yeah. Faith, okay, brings about dependence. So, in our daily lives, what we are concerned about as Christians is exercising faith. Without faith, Hebrews 11.6, it is not possible to please God. Okay? So faith, do you see how rational it is? you see how uh, easy it is to think about faith in that way? It's not just, uh, you know, believe, I believe, I believe, I don't really believe, but I'm trying to believe, you know. Uh, it's not that. Um, it's certainly not, you know, if I just believe enough, if I just trust enough, you know, I'm not sure what I'm trusting in, but I just believe that I'm going to get this house, get this car, get this wife, get this husband or whatever. For stuff, you know, that's not it either. In fact, that's very close to, um, to what uh, Eastern mysticism does. You know, pictures like a house, the house that you want, and picture it and focus on it and, and do the mantra about that. Um, what faith is, is faith is going to God in need. Going to God in need. Even when you're praising God, okay, you're praising him because He is glorious in his attributes because he is wonderful in his creation, because he is faithful in his providence, because he is gracious in his salvation. All of these things are things that we have no power over and so many more things. So we're going out to God in dependence and trust 
on God. Okay, This is where, when we are counseling people, this is where we need to get them. If we, If they stay here, they're going to stay in their trouble and their problems. Do you see? So we've got to get them to exercise faith. Faith in what? Well, what does the world say you've got to exercise faith in? Yeah, yourself. I mean, that's what secular psychology, okay, you might transfer some faith to the guy um, who, you know, smoking a cigar next to you or um, nowadays, you know, maybe with the, the pen in his mouth or whatever with a notebook. Um, but he's going to tell you that you have the power to get through this yourself with help maybe of psychotropic drugs and maybe a bit more counseling at $200 an hour or whatever it is. Faith is what we're driving the person to, not in ourselves, not in themselves, certainly, but in God, going out to God. That is necessary because of the fall. If the fall didn't happen, faith in God isn't necessary. You know, we've got it in ourselves. If the fall didn't happen, then um, where do man's troubles and problems and his inner strivings, where they all come from? The fall is the great reality that we must understand and we must get the council lead to understand, okay? You will be surprised how many Christians have a wrong understanding of the, the sin of man and the fall of man. The sinfulness of sin. We need them to understand um, about the sinfulness of sin. Now, Les is here. He's a pastor. I'm here. I'm a pastor. And uh, as pastors, we can tell you that... There are people that come to our churches and uh, they appear to be very spiritual people. But one or two sermons on sin will drive them far away. Okay? Some people really, really don't like to hear about sin. The reason I don't want to hear about sin is because of this. Okay? It's because of this. But you cannot get here with God unless we have a strong doctrine of sin. All right. Here's what uh, the fall of man is. Let's have a look at some scriptures. Romans one thirty. <laughs> Romans one thirty. You can just write these down if you want, and I'll read them for you. This is a basic description, a sin list. If you want slanderers. Haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. That's Romans 1.30. It's just something you snatch out of there. There's plenty more in that context too. But this is, I mean, we've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven things, evils right there. And the thing is, I recognize myself in all of these. Slander, have I slandered somebody? Yes. Okay, I try not to. Okay, I don't generally do it. But you know what? 
that's not good enough. I don't generally do it isn't good enough. If you've done it, that's what you are, you know. Haters of God. I used to be a hater of God. Maybe some of you didn't. Ah, but this is where the Bible gets you, you see, because because you don't have to have these horrible, negative, violent feelings towards God to be a hater of God. You just need to ignore God. You just need to despise God in the way that you you live your life. And guess what? That means you're a hater of God. <laughs> Insolent, haughty, or proud, you know, puffed up, boastful, bragging about yourself, having eye trouble, inventors of evil things. Don't we do? We do that really easily. You know, it's hard to invent good things, but evil things we're pretty good at. Disobedient to parents. He throws that one in as if it's, you know, um, it just part and parcel of this list. And we've, of course, been disobedient to our parents in the past. Here's another one. Listen to this one in Romans 5.10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That's a good news passage, but it begins with the fall. It begins with sin. Enemies of God. Enemies of God. People out there in the world, they... they would say, I'm not an enemy of God. I mean, the rabid atheist will. But generally people say, well, I just don't believe in God. I just don't really think about God. Or maybe they've got a God of their own making. But they wouldn't call themselves enemies of God. But the Bible says they're enemies of God. Sometimes uh, a Christian will get so much of the world into their heart and their mind that in their thinking and in their kind of interactions, they're actually functioning like enemies of God. So we need to root these things out. In order to root these things out, we need to kind of delve into them. We need to have these things in mind. Romans 8, 7 is extremely important. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So, so the Apostle Paul, in some places, for example, example in Ephesians 4, very important passage that we'll be looking at in detail, uh, he says that... Uh, the Christians in Ephesus are not to be like the Gentiles who have their minds darkened, their understanding darkened, they are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Why are they ignorant? Because of the hardness of their hearts. Ephesians 4.18 That would be great if that was just a big label we could slap on the world. And, you know, we're not like that. But the problem is, Paul's saying, we can be like that and we shouldn't be like that. Do you see? That means that these traits that we see in the world can be our traits as Christians. And... People come with messed up lives as Christians. Maybe partly because their understandings are darkened. 
they are alienated in a sense from the life of God because they're ignorant. Why are they ignorant? Their hearts are hardened. So we want, above all things, to be independent of God. Above all things, we want to be autonomous. And that's certainly the case with the world, and it is the case with you and I too. Um, very important if you're going to, if you're, you're going to counsel yourself, you know, or counsel somebody else, uh, these are the kind of things you have to have in mind, okay? You're not just trying to fix a little problem. Because the problem has a deeper root. It's really just a symptom of something that's much more um, deadly. Okay, so um, I wanted to look here at I'm picking and choosing what I, I tell you here. Let's look a little bit at the consequences of the fall because there are physical effects. Physical effects. Second Corinthians 4.16 says it very bluntly. Our outer self or the outward man is perishing. The outward man is perishing. And now it goes on again with some good news about the inward man. But the outward man is perishing. So we're going to encounter problems in our lives because of physical issues. You see, God has made us uh, body and soul. But as we saw last week, really, these two, body and soul, they can be broken down into a bunch of things. Body, soul, spirit, mind, will, personality, you know, all of these things. Heart. These are all different facets, although they're all part of the one being. You're one human being. What it means is that these components, if you will, of our selves, if they if they start to uh, work against each other, they affect each other. So, of course, the body, because it's perishing, if it starts, you know, if it's it, you get the flu. Um, or you get cancer, or you just get old, or whatever it might be, you know. Um, you don't have as much energy as, as before, whatever. These things can affect your mood. Your mood is not really part of your body, that's part of your emotions, that's part of your soulish nature, do you see? And so sometimes the body can be the problem. Many people with depression, the first thing that you need to do when you're talking to them or when you, if you're experiencing depression yourself, is they need to get a physical exam to see if there's anything wrong with them. Okay? Because the body, uh, under certain conditions, can make you feel depressed. Right? Can even make you feel unsure. Make you lack 
confidence that you ought to have. Not, I'm not talking about pride, but just the confidence that you ought to have, you know, to face the day and so on. Sometimes it's just the body. Something's just not working, or you caught something, or, um, you know, maybe you, uh, you're tired, you haven't got enough sleep. In fact, very often, it's because people don't have enough sleep that their emotional lives are, are kind of topsy-turvy. So these are, are things that we need to be aware of, you know. We don't need to be these, uh, the, these uh, uh, great physicians of the soul if the problem is just that a person needs more sleep. You know, maybe they're stressed. They're stressed at work. They've got a difficult job that they're doing. That's going to wear a person down. Sometimes it's not going to be possible for them to take a break. But there are things, therefore, you're informed about what the issue is, and you may be able to to say, well, what are you doing that's wrong? Okay, What are you not building into your day that you need to build into your day? All of these things are just, again, the part and parcel of uh, the fall. What about uh, the effect of sin on the mind? We covered this a little bit last week, but I want to give you a few scriptures here. Do any, does anyone remember the word that I use? The Greek word is noose, okay? And from that, you get this weird word, noetic, okay, <laughs> which isn't a Greek word. It's, a, it's an English word that's taken from the Greek, like a, um, an atheist. It's based on atheos, you know, the, uh, the Greek term, but it's actually an English word, okay, Translate, transliterated and so on. Noetic means uh, upon the mind. Okay, upon the mind. And we have to look at the effects of sin upon the mind. It's very important. Sin has permeated our minds, both in the difficulty some of us have in doing things like mathematical equations. Definitely, I'm definitely uh, affected by sin in that area of my life. Um, or understanding propositions or learning languages. Okay? Different effects of sin in these, in these areas. But, much more seriously, in the negative effect that sin has upon our thinking about creation, our creator, about God. Colossians 1.21 says, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Alienated and hostile in mind. That is the way that an unsaved person is. Ephesians 2.2 talks about the world following the course of this world. The thinking of this world, the way, you know, the, the values of this world and so on. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The sons 
of disobedience. They have lives characterized by disobedience. Towards who? Towards God. They might think they're jolly good fellows. They might think they're great guys and gals, but they are not. They're sons and daughters of disobedience. Uh, Notice it talks about the prince of the power of the air there, the the devil. We're going to talk quite a lot about the devil in this study. Let no one deceive you with empty words, talking to Christians. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. But we've got to be careful that we're not deceived by the very things that make the sons of disobedience, what they are. We can be drawn into disobeying God. We can be drawn into ignoring God. We can be drawn into the the plans of the devil and the schemes of Satan if we're not careful. Paul asks this question in 1 Corinthians one twenty: Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? You know, the man of learning. Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Okay, now think about this. Apply it to yourself. Where is the wise person? Okay, so what does the Bible say a wise person is? Quiet. <laughs> Holds his tongue. There we go. Thank you. All right. Can I take noetic off? All right. <clears throat> this is a subject we'll be looking at. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So, obviously, people in the world are not wise, cannot be wise. All right? To the extent that they do not fear God. Whereas the, the scribe, this is talking about the, the, the religious sage, okay, in particular. And all kinds of gurus out there, particularly in a Mendocino County, you don't have to go very far. You need to you know, go to coffee shops and restaurants and so on go to the co-op, and you're confronted by all of these sages, you know. You never find Jesus there. You never find the Bible there, but you do always find, uh, you know, all of these. Uh, if, they have to, if they're Indian, it makes them even wiser. Um, or if they're Native Americans, they're, they're you know, automatically wiser. Um, that's the world. And these people are supposed to speak wisdom into your life. And yet, Paul sees right through them and says, these people are not scribes, they are not wise. Don't listen to them. But the world listens to them. And so, unfortunately, do a lot of people in the churches. Where's the debater of this age? You know, the person that you, you think has got a good argument. He's, he's arguing from a worldly perspective. And you listen to him. Be careful. 
Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So if God has made the wisdom of the world foolish, why would we want to get some of that wisdom in the form of psychology and psychiatry and bring it into our understanding of human predicaments. Is it wise of us, in other words, to go to what God has called foolish in order to find wisdom and help? Absolutely not. Now, this is not to say, because of common grace, because of the uh, the gifts that God has given individuals, this is not to say you can't take a music lesson from Mozart. You understand? It's not to say that you can't go and learn about uh, you know a plethora of things from uh, non-Christians. It doesn't mean that you don't you can't see a non-Christian doctor or dentist or someone like that. You see, but what it does mean is that when it comes to understanding the world, when it comes to understanding yourself, when it comes to understanding what your life is about, uh, you listen to God. You listen to God, you don't listen to the ideas of the world. Here's a quotation from a an older theologian called W.H. Griffith Thomas. Just listen to it. Uh, I can... Give it to you later if you want to. He says this, sin is defiance, revolt, and implies a deliberate voluntary breaking away from the divine will and a violation of the divine order. Think about this. Breaking away from what God says And once you break away from what God says, then you can reorder the world. You see the connection there? So, as a Christian, you can break away from what God says and then invent a Christianity or a spirituality um, that actually more more reflects the world's teachings than uh, the teachings of of scripture. Um, I don't mind, I'll just bring this in. Um, so we've been preaching on prayer at Agape recently, and I've made it a point to kind of, kind of drive home to the congregation what prayer is and what prayer is not. Um, what the world says prayer is, and it doesn't matter where you go, to what religion, it says that prayer is empty in your mind. Okay? Empty your mind of content. That's come into evangelical churches through the Roman Catholic Church, okay, as this kind of just opening yourself up, you know, waiting for God to speak. Okay? That is not biblical prayer. That's the world. That's the world. Okay? You don't find anyone doing that in the Bible. Instead, prayer, if you want to see what the good prayers are, go to the Psalms. There's nobody, you know, waiting for God to speak. They're speaking to God. And they're praising God for what he's done. 
It's full of content, but it's meditative, it's contemplative, it's thoughtful. Their, their minds and therefore their lives are being transformed as they think about God and think about his truth. Just, just, uh, look at Psalm 119. It's all about that, you know? It's about content. Sin, W.H. Griffith Thomas continues, is lawlessness. Thus sin at its deepest is the rejection of God and disobedience to his will. This involves a distortion of man's life, nature, and relationship with God involving inability to do good and responsibility for what is evil. Let me unpack that a little bit. I love this. I love theology, but I know it's not everyone's cup of tea, okay? So, um, this rejection, this disobedience, is a distortion of man's life. What that means is that uh, under... Uh, listening to the world and listening to ourselves and our emotions and so on, um, when we do that, automatically, because we're not thinking of what God has said, because we're not under the divine will, we've put ourselves, you know, to the left or right of it, that we start, therefore, to distort and corrupt what God has said. We distort life what it's about, and our our evaluation of it. We distort what we are, our nature. Our nature. We're creatures. That's the most fundamental thing you can say about us. We're creatures. We always will be creatures. Creatures have a creator. (laughs) A creature that is not, especially the kind of creature that we are, that can think and, and, uh, you know, do all the amazing things that we can do that doesn't, uh, praise his creator and, and involve his creator in his life is not operating in the way that he should be operating. And the relationship with God involves an inability to do good and a responsibility for what is evil. Uh, you might think that a relationship with God is a uh, an enjoy enjoying of God's presence feeling emotion it's not fundamentally it's not that's good when it's present when it's there it's not always there because that's not really what the main thing is heaven will involve that because the whole person will be immersed in that land of glory but a relationship with God can be a, an unsafe person has a relationship with God. What kind of unsafe, what kind of, sorry, relationship with God do they have? Rebellion, revolt, disobedience. Do you see? A Christian can have a relationship with God. They have one in the fact that they're linked to God by the Holy Spirit. That's there. That's taken for granted. And yet, they are disobedient sons and daughters. They're not listening. They're inattentive. They're willful, they're, they're, they're worldly in their values, and they've allowed the world to dictate what's important uh, in their lives, what goals they're going to seek after, and so on. And so 
their relationship with God is 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 wrong. It's not what it should be, and they're unable unable sorry to do what God calls good. It's only when they start to listen to God and obey God again that God will say, okay, now what you're doing will be good because it's in line with my plan for you. It's in line for the way you ought to be functioning. A clock that's stopped, I mean, it's right twice a day, isn't it? But um, but just because it... it it's right, it's good twice a day, doesn't mean it's good. It's got to function in the right way, and so do you, in line with what God says in his word. But you are responsible for the evil you do. Why? Because you've deliberately gone away from God. You are deciding to be independent of his word. Therefore, you are culpable. Sin is therefore much more than something merely negative. Sin is both negative as the refusal to will what is good and positive as implying the attitude of the will towards unrighteousness. So it's negative because it says no to God. (laughs) Okay? And it's positive um, because of its attitude towards unrighteousness. It says yes to sin and wickedness. You see that? And we can't, you know, we can only function that way because we're independent. Okay, this is, this is the, the root of sin right here, which just means it's the root of our problems. <clears throat> All right. Any, uh, any questions on this so far? Anything, observations from anyone? Mm-hmm. Um, the struggle that Paul talks about in Romans 7. Um, trying to get my mind around, you know, our willful disobedience yes. as a Christian. When he, you know, was struggling with his flesh, but his inner man was desiring to do the right thing. Romans 7. Uh, we'll certainly go to that. So, but I'll give you a brief, uh, kind of, Pricey of it. Um, Notice what's going on there. In fact, at the end of Romans 7, he describes it as a a battle of the will. Okay? In fact, if you're, uh, you've got two impulses. You've got the impulse to sin, and that's in his flesh, which means it's it's this default that he's, he's dealing with. Okay? So there's this principle, there's this law of the flesh, this law of sin that he's finding, and he hates himself for it, okay? And, uh, you know, speaks against himself because he finds this horror within his own heart, within his own way of, of, of functioning. And so he, you know, he says... Here, verse 18 of Romans 7. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. So, so differentiate between his flesh 
I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm just, I did that for emphasis. You're supposed to, I'm supposed to have a pause there. Okay. <laughs> where I just, you just kind of the, 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 the seriousness of the speaker is supposed to come across to you. Right? So nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I don't find. And then he continues, and he says in verse 21, I find then, or I discover a law, a principle, that evil is present with me. Okay, that's just the way it is, isn't it? That's the way it is. Um, we are malfunctioning. We'll always be malfunctioning until we are changed, until we... Romans 8, you know, <laughs> we're glorified. Uh, so this is how it it kind of, this is why that the default's always this, okay? It's easy to find, it's easy to locate, it's just what I come back to all the time. And yet, then he says this, verse 22, I delight, I... I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, the changed man, the born again man. Your, your flesh isn't born again. Praise God for that. Okay? Right. Now, because that would be a big disappointment. But, uh, I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members. And not just, you know, remember, that in the Bible, it's not just your body. Your, your body in Romans 6 is, uh, it's called, uh, they're called, your limbs and so on are called instruments of unrighteousness. <laughs> okay? So your mind uses these instruments. Okay? Actually, weapons is the Greek term that's used there. <laughs> and, uh, I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Bringing me into captivity. This is the experience, is it not, of so many Christians. Well, of all Christians, actually. O wretched man that I am. Modern translation. O dirtbag that I am. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God. His praise. His praise going up in the midst of the struggle through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, here's the resolution. With the mind, I myself serve the the law of God. With the flesh, the law of sin. Now, flesh in Scripture is... The, uh, this, this default principle. Okay, it's not just the body. Okay, it has to do with the sinful inclination, the unsaved, um, aspect, sin coursing through your body. So Romans chapter 6 tackles that. Let not therefore sin reign in your mortal bodies. Do you see? To do the bidding thereof. How do you counter it? Through the mind. How do you get the mind engaged? That's our next subject. Okay, the will, the will. So look, I just, there's a great transition that I did there as well, because going into what we're doing next. Yes. Do you ever find when you're counseling people, they use that very 
they don't do that, but what they, they, they define themselves as certain things. Um, and psychology helps them do it. You know, I'm, um, uh, OCD. Or, uh, you know, I'm bipolar or I'm, you know, what's that, manic depressive? Well, that is bipolar. Um, uh, I am, I can't think right now, but, oh, certainly that's a very good one. Yes, I'm a victim of, of this, and we'll be looking, I've got the book here, Nation of Victims. Um, yeah, I mean, they define themselves as something, and because they define themselves as something, that's what they are. They believe that they are that. So it's like you have to have this little skirmish with them, uh, friendly, to to uh, try to draw them out. Why do you think that way? Yeah, why are you defining yourself that way? Because if you look at Romans 8, 2, it says this, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. <laughs> so how are you defining yourself? Are you defining yourself by the word of God? which takes faith, or are you defining yourself by what you've, you know, by your experience, what the world's told you, whatever, okay? Um, someone might say that, uh, you know, I'm, I, um, I tend to be depressed, depressed all the time, okay? I know all about depression, okay? But, but that's not who you are. Okay, you may be depressed, you may be angry, but that's not who you are. Do you see? And it's very important that we understand that. There are problems with an angry person. For a start, he's a fool. That's what the Bible calls him. A person that believes in their own heart is a fool, according to Scripture. Uh, but a person who is uh, maybe depressed, okay, maybe there is a, uh, a physiological reason that they're depressed, okay? Maybe there is a, an experience that they've not dealt with at the cross, okay? We're going to talk a little bit about abuse later on. Maybe they were abused in some way in their early life, or marked by their upbringing or something. But that's not who they are. There's still a choice that needs to be made. Is Am I going to allow this to define me, or am I going to allow the Word of God to define me? Do you see? Because there's a, there's a choice involved. But the choice for the Word of God, the choice to... Um, to walk in this uh, this law of the spirit of life involves faith. And it, it involves a constant countering of this <laughs> in your life. So um, let's have a look at my expert drawing here that, that I had for you, ready when you came in. So the reason that he that he's a stick figure is so he's generic. He can be any one of you. Okay, that's why I did that. Okay, could have been a really excellent drawing, but I decided to go. I decided to be simple, 
All right. Oh, I've got to take this out of the way. I, I, this obviously belongs there in a sense, doesn't it? But we're not ready for it right now. Is there a reason you call <laughs> He? Not really. It's because I'm a he. Um, okay, so here's God, his word. He's eternal. He's given us a book. He's given us one book. We have one revelation from God. Okay, We have one touchstone. Um, you might say, well, uh, you know, God can communicate in other ways. Of course he can, he's God. But even if he does choose to do that, and he doesn't very often, but if he does, you still bring it to this. You see? So this is it, all right? So we've been given this, and it's a book from outside, as I like to call it. Every other book is a book from inside. This is a book from outside that tells us what's wrong with the inside. And and what's going to happen to change it as well. Um, this is where, um, you know, going back to the Chronicles of Narnia, for example, you know, if, you, if your kids have uh, read the Chronicles of Narnia, one of the messages that C.S. Lewis, a very, very brilliant man, uh, tries to get across in the Chronicles of Narnia is that... First of all, don't worry about what's happening to that person. His story is different to yours. You've got your story. Uh, Another thing might be that, uh, yeah, just because you were delivered this time, things don't repeat themselves, okay? In other words, the the same event doesn't really happen again. You can't expect that God will do it again that way, okay? Okay. Certain times, uh, the, some of the kids, they ask, why did this, why did you allow this to happen? Why did these people have to die? And, you know, the answer that comes back is, is something like, because nothing, nothing is, repeats itself. You know, things have to be different. And, you know, everyone has their own story, but then, then there's this, this elusive presence of, of Aslan. There on occasions, but but then not there. You know, where is Aslan in the horse and his boy, for example, and and all of those experiences that that kid has to go through. Uh, what about the last battle and that that awful kind of demonic presence that's there? And it's only it's only broken through. There's promise there, isn't there? There's promise that there's something better. But where is it? It's it's not until the very end of the book when they have to go through this kind of scary, what is it? I'm not sure what it is now. They go through an enclosure and they go out into this uh, field and so on. And, they, you know, these animals come and say, you know, what was it, onward and inward or something? And it keeps escalating. The colors get brighter and things get more glorious as they they. Get into it, do you see? There's the promise right at the end, but all through the story, there's struggle. All through the stories, there's opportunities to give up. All through the stories, there's, there's tragedy and there's difficulty. And, uh, you know, they have to hold on to the fact that there's something better. This is what the Bible is. It's our promise that there's something better ahead, Okay. Um, so biblical counseling is basically 
This is God's book. We take God's book and we apply it to the counselee. Okay, that's what it is. We take this book and we apply it to the counselee. Why did I put the book up here? Not because I'm a bad artist. Let's not hear that. <laughs> but why did I do it? I did it for, I did it. Well, that's actually very good, Robert. Yeah. Um, but that's not why I did it. Um, I did it because it's the word of God. It's God's word, so it belongs with God here. Do you see on the same uh, level as God? If if uh, God came down into this church and thundered and lightning and started to boom as he did on Mount Sinai, it wouldn't be any more authoritative than this book. Did you see? That's what you need to believe about this book and that's what you need to get across to the person you counsel. This is the authority. This is the word of God. And so that involves dealing with the will. Uh, what's that saying? A mind, what is it? A mind convinced against its will or a person convinced against their will is a person, I'm not sure, unconvinced still or something. I haven't quite got it. But you've got to change the will. Here's a study from, uh, it's an article by Ab Abercrombie. And yes, he is a real person. And... um, it's from the Biblical Counseling Institute. I want you to write that down. Biblical Counseling Institute, or BCI. Uh, it's BC Institute, if you want to uh, find it on the web. But uh, Ab Abercrombie. I believe that all in all, this is the best site, um, or or the just the soundest. Uh, biblical counseling site out there. <clears throat> Here's a case study that he goes through. For, um, names this person Rebecca. And I just want to read it to you. I don't want you to th- kind of think through it. Uh, what if Rebecca was coming in front of you and, you, and talking to you? So here she is. She starts. <clears throat> um, in fact, let's, uh, the, the, the introduction says this. Rebecca is a 42-year-old married mother of two middle school daughters. She and her husband, Jay, are members of a local church, and both are professing Christians. Recently, Jay discovered numerous email exchanges between Rebecca and another man that suggested a sexual relationship. When confronted, Rebecca confessed that she had been seeing the other man regularly for about six months. Under the threat of divorce, Rebecca has come for counseling. So there's your introduction. So, Rebecca. I know you must think I am awful for doing what I did. I am guilty of hurting so many people. I have thought about it a great deal and believe I have an explanation. So how how does she start off? (laughs) 
she starts off wrong, yeah, but how does she start off? There's, well, we, we kind of are waiting for a justification, aren't we? At least that. I'm sorry? There we go. Yes, exactly. The first thing that she does is that she's kind of like, um, she says, yeah, I know, I know I've done an awful thing. I mean, I'm, I'm a terrible person and all of that stuff, okay? And so people, you might be, you might sit down with a counselee and there might be an issue of, of, you know, sin like this, of grievous sin like this. And, uh, they come out like that and you think, oh, well, at least they're admitting they're wrong. Okay? At least they've got, at least they're upfront about it, so I don't need to deal with them about that. So let's see how this goes. <laughs> because we are very, very good at deceiving ourselves and we want to deceive other people. Okay? Counselor. An explanation, because she said, you know, I think I've got an explanation. An explanation, what do you mean by that? So he's not focusing in on the, uh, you know, the excuse of the, or, or rather the, the, um, saying, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I've done wrong. He's just asking, what do you mean? Rebecca, I know why I fell into this affair. The Lord has shown me that it is not my fault. Okay. Uh, it is astonishing, particularly in our culture, in our evangelical culture, okay, how many times we hear, the Lord has told me, the Lord has shown me, okay? And you say, where do you get that in the Bible? And, you know, lo and behold, they can't tell you where they got it in the Bible. It's come from some other source. Then the question is, well, how do you know the Lord told you that? Okay. Because that's kind of, you expect me to believe that? I mean, the Lord may have told you, but I don't have to believe that, do I? You know, I, I only need to believe this. That's what I'm supposed to do. <clears throat> so the Lord has shown me, notice also what she's doing here, is that she's, she's bringing in the authority of God to explain away her sin. What does that tell you about her heart? It's not repentant and it's not ready, okay, to depend on God, to confess to God. It's not ready yet to hear the word of God. In fact, what she's doing is she's actually substituted the word of God with the word of God, hasn't she? She substituted the Bible with the Lord told me, all right? So it's really nifty, the exchange that she's done. It's all set up. She's all set up to go into the counseling session to get help, okay, but not for her sin. Counselor, your affair with another man is not your fault. Do you mean to say that you were abducted and raped by this man? Uh, That's a pretty blunt question, is it not? But we're not, we're not messing around when we're doing biblical counseling. Okay, it doesn't mean that we can't be gentle. It doesn't mean that we, um, you know, can't be careful and measured. But we're not there to mess around. Okay, Rebecca. In a way, I was. My husband doesn't know this, but long before I met this man on the internet, I had been drinking regularly. 
Some might call me a closet alcoholic. We'll go back, come back to this because this is great. <clears throat> I was so unhappy in my marriage that I began to drink a little wine during the day. It made me feel better. Before I knew it, I was drinking wine practically non-stop throughout the day. My mother was an alcoholic, and now I see that I might be too. I lost control of myself because of the wine. <laughs> okay, now there's uh, a few things that I want to call your attention to in this. First of all, he didn't know what response he was going to get. He just asked some simple questions, and then we got a fairly lengthy response. In that lengthy response, there's quite a lot of information. But the information, notice, it's, it's driving towards an excuse. It's not her fault. But in getting that information across, she's giving you some really interesting facts that you can go back to. Okay, this is where you take notes, that's where you kind of circle something or you remember something. You think, oh, maybe something's out of place here. Let's, let's analyze this, uh, a little here. First of all, my husband doesn't know this. That's always, uh, you know, or my wife doesn't know this. Okay, always be careful of that. Okay, that's something to note. Um, I've been drinking regularly. Some might call me an al- a closet alcoholic. Isn't that great wording? Some other people might call me a closet alcoholic. She's not calling herself that. I was so unhappy in my marriage. Okay, there you go. Before she met this man, okay, she was unhappy in her marriage that I began to drink a little wine during the day. Don't accept that as a necessary excuse. You know, she was unhappy, therefore she started to drink. That may not be the way it happened. Okay? If she's unhappy, she's discontented probably, and you've got to find the, get to the bottom of why, why were you discontented? What was the issue there? Was he not providing or, you know, were you in, uh, were you praying? Were you in the Bible? And what was your spiritual life like then when you say that you were unhappy? It made me feel better. Okay? Possibility there that we've got a feelings-motivated individual. And then before I knew it, I was drinking all the time. Okay? Lack of control or lack of taking responsibility for control. My mother was an alcoholic. That's an interesting fact. Put it down there. Okay. Um, there is no scientific data to say that just because your grandfather or your grandmother was an alcoholic that you're going to be an alcoholic or that's why you're an alcoholic. But there could be a connection. In the same way, I, I'll put it this way. A person whose grandparents were involved in the occult, okay, it's worth, if you, if you are dealing with somebody who's kind of experiencing some occult phenomenon, phenomena, sorry, ask about whether their parents or grandparents were involved in it. Okay? Often, it's often the case that they were. But there's no scientific connection, okay? About that. <clears throat> but it's a, an interesting piece of information. But she, she's saying it, Okay, not to give you 
data, she sang it actually just to get to where she needs to get to, which is this. And now I see, ah, see, I've already, I've already counseled myself. Uh, I see that I might be too. I might be. I lost control of myself because of the wine. Okay? Which sounds kind of an updated version of Aaron's excuse for the golden calf. Okay? Um, counselor. So the sin of adultery is counseled because of your sin of drunkenness. <laughs> that's a great, that's a great way of cutting through the nonsense, isn't it? Because he, he's already, when he found out about this, uh, he's already identified it by what the Bible calls it. Okay? Adultery. She's committed adultery. That's what he's dealing with. He's dealing with an adulteress here. And a drunkard. Do you see? That's what we're dealing with. Well, she says, that's not a very kind way to put it. And here, by the way, what you might find very often is you may find someone gets upset because of the, that you put truth on them. And they, then they will have a go at you for being unloving. Okay. I'm simply saying that if I wasn't alcoholic, I would never have taken the steps I did with Roger, the other man. My disease caused me to take this step, not my sin. Okay. What this tells you is that she first of all misunderstands uh, what alcoholism is. She doesn't think it's a sin. She thinks it's a disease. Why does she think it's a disease? The world. Exactly. The world has told her it's a disease. Okay? And uh, that means that she also has a faulty view of sin. So you're going to have to deal with her about worldly thinking, and you're going to have to deal with her about an understanding of sin. Counselor, disease is what the world calls alcoholism. What does God's word say about it? Rebecca, well, judging from your question, (laughs) I am sure the Bible must call it sin. She doesn't know. She's just jumping there, and she's right, of course. But that really isn't true anymore. We now know that alcoholism is something we inherit, not something we choose. Counselor opens the Bible. Rebecca, you told me that you have professed Christ as your saviour, correct? Rebecca, of course. You aren't going to tell me that I am not saved because I made a mistake, are you? Counselor, you will have to make the evaluation or that evaluation before God. But scripture shows us the expectation of changed conduct beyond our salvation. Look at this passage. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Romans 13, 13 and 14. Rebecca, quiet, then rebellious. What does that have to do with me? Now, 
Some of you are looking surprised, but don't look surprised. Okay? <laughs> don't look surprised because you're going to deal with this. And if, if you're surprised and shocked by this, you're going to kind of feel that uh, you're off kilter. Do you see? You've, you've got to expect that sin manifests itself in this way and, and, and does kind of, ish, kind of shocking. Um, <clears throat> what does this have to do with me? Counselor, I think this passage quiets the debate concerning disease and inheritance. Did you not walk in drunkenness and revelry? Rebecca, yes, but it wasn't my fault. Counselor, did you not walk in lewdness and lust? Re- Rebecca, well, I guess I walked in lust, but I wasn't lewd. And she's angry this by this time. Counselor opens a dictionary. Let's see. Lewd means, quote, showing an inordinate, an inordinate interest in sex or sexual excitement. What do you think? Rebecca, angry. Okay, lust and lewdness. What's your point? Counselor, let's just complete the passage. What about strife and envy? Rebecca, more angry. Yes, 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 I had strife. I hated my life with Jay. I hated him. I envied other women who had men who made them feel loved and appreciated. I envied women who felt passion in their marriage. I wanted what they had, so I found a way to escape. And nobody would have ever known if my husband hadn't kept his nose out of my private emails. That's exactly the attitude that forced me away from him to begin with. And she's shouting at this time. But she's still not, you know, she's not accepting any responsibility, is she? Counselor, you truly feel you are justified in the actions you have taken. You bet I do. Counselor, so long before you discovered your disease, you were angry, bitter, dissatisfied wife, filled with envy, fantasy, and desire for something outside your home. Before you ever took a sip of wine... Your heart had nursed on resentment, unforgiveness, and rage. And rather than put on the Lord Jesus Christ, you put on rebellion and made provision for the flesh. Your heart led you to drink, not your mother's genes. Your heart led you to adultery, not a disease. Your heart defiled you. Where am I? Sorry, lost my page here. Not your environment. So she starts now to begin weeping. Counselor, God will receive you and restore you if you repent and return to him. But he gave you every warning in his word, and he is not interested in explanation and excuse. Nothing changes in your heart, behavior, or marriage until he is the focus of your devotion. And a little note here at the end. Long before Rebecca's adultery was observed, her alcohol abuse was active. Long before she took her first drink, her envy and sense of self-entitlement was inflamed. Before she was envious and engulfed in fantasy, she was angry, bitter, and inconsolable. And even before her anger, there was selfishness and disregard for others. How did she open up? Do you remember? First words out of her mouth was, I've done something terrible. I've done something awful. I now have hurt people. But you see, 
That was completely superficial. That was on the same level as the demon-possessed woman in Acts chapter 6 who said, these people have come to teach us the way of God in truth. And she's demon-possessed. So um, this is a great example, I think, of um, of the deceitfulness of the human heart. And she's she's a Christian, and there was... Uh, reconciliation, there was repentance, you've got, there's got to be repentance, and we'll look at that. Uh, and, uh, the marriage was restored. But, you know, it had to go through steps. Okay? But sin is sin, folks. It has to be dealt with as sin. Not a disease, not what a mum did. Okay? Not about any of that, it's about what does God say? I thought that the, the key thing here, and the key thing that we've got to keep in mind in our own lives, and also in the lives of people we try to help, is that God does not accept excuses. Anywhere in the Bible, with anybody, different personality types, different backgrounds, coming out of idolatry, coming out of drunkenness, and all of the things that it says in the epistles of Paul about you were like this, remember? Um, you know, bacchanalials and uh, Dionysian feasts and temple prostitutes and uh, worshipping idols and all the rest of it. Okay? Paul doesn't say, yeah, I know it's hard, I know you've learned these things and it's it's tough and you've had some difficult experiences and so on. And God understands. It's not none of that at all. It's like, stop it. Stop it. That's sin. Call it what it is. It's sin. Now you have to be gentle with them, but you have to you have to keep on the line that you want them to get on. Okay? Right? In, in that conversation, Rebecca was here all the time. He could not help her as long as she was doing this. This, by the way, is where the psychologist will affirm a person. Okay? Make them be a more, a better you. Your self-esteem is, 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 uh, kind of weakened or in tatters and so on. We need to build it up. Okay? The Bible doesn't say anything about self-esteem. In fact, we read in Romans chapter 7 there that I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. There's self-esteem for you. Okay? We actually, the problem is not our self-esteem. The problem is that we esteem ourselves too much. That's the problem right there, you see. And because we esteem ourselves so much, there are problems in our emotional lives, there are problems in our relationships, there are problems uh, in... Um, our experience. Why? Well, sin. <laughs> sin. Okay? So we're trying to get a person from independence to dependence. We're trying to get a person... I drew this wrong, actually. Okay? Because um, here's a person who is in independence. Okay? A person who is... Where's me? Here we go. A person who is dependent... 
is going to be right under the word of God. You see? Right under. That's where Adam and Eve should have been. Okay? So when the serpent came in and started whispering, started talking, started saying, well, God knows, and all of that stuff, because Eve was right under the word of God, she wouldn't have listened. That would have been the end of it. That would have deepened the relationship. Um, that would have, um, the fall wouldn't have happened, you know. Or, well, not to put it all on, he, on Eve, because it wasn't. The Bible doesn't put it all on Eve. But if she'd have succumbed, because she was deceived, if Adam, who wasn't deceived, had just kept to where he was supposed to be as a creature of God, you know, things would have been okay. And there's actually a parallel to some of the, you know, some of you were kind of uh, snickering a little bit at some of the things that she said because it was so silly. But what about Adam in the garden? I hid because I heard your voice in the garden. I knew I was naked and I was afraid. Why were you afraid? You know, I mean, it gets it gets really silly, doesn't it? That's what sin does. And we, we're trying to manufacture excuses, and then our deceitful hearts believe the excuses, and then we get indignant when somebody points out the excuses that we believed. But we've got to do that. The Word of God does that. That's, that's its function. Okay. All right. So we're at eight o'clock here, and I haven't got onto the will. <laughs> so, any questions? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's come a time you have to just like, okay, I can't be part of this person's life. I can't. I'm not going to help them. What good am I doing? Yeah, I mean, that's where, you know, when Proverbs says that, uh, um, you know, you, you don't strive with a fool. Okay, so, because um, you become like them. Remember, that's at Proverbs 23. Five and six or somewhere in there. You know. So you, you've got to be careful that you don't become like them. Um, and Jesus says, don't throw your pearls before swine. And yet at the same time, um, you do prod enough to see if you can get them finally to start seeing some things. It took a while for it to get her to see. Okay. But she could, um, there was a trajectory that he was on. And it was different than her trajectory. And he was, he had to wait and be patient and endure some anger in order to get her face to face with her own sin. So it, it, you have to be wise on this. Last thing I want to just bring to your attention here is, um, just a little bit from this book. And it's just very, very quickly, um, but um, this, he's talking about, this is Charles Sykes, and he's talking about the work of someone called Theodore Adorno, who you wouldn't have heard of, but a very, very influential 
person and his book, The Authoritarian Personality. And um, this is, um, here's a description. I'll just read it out. It's it's, uh, taken from the book. A certain kind of person, quote, cannot stand any outside interference with his personal convictions and beliefs, and he does not want to interfere with those of others either. One of his conspicuous features is moral courage, often beyond his rational evaluation of a situation. He cannot keep silent if something wrong is being done, even if he seriously endangers himself. Just as he is strongly individualized himself, he sees the others, above all, as individuals, not as specimens of a general concept. He is little repressed and even has certain difficulties in keeping himself under control. However, his emotionality is not blind, but directed towards the other person as a subject. His love is not only desire, but also compassion, as a matter of fact. One might think of his defining, of defining this syndrome as quote-unquote the compassionate. Okay, that is a, a definition of a genuine liberal from Adorno who is writing uh, this book in uh, 1950, okay, 1950. And that uh, is very close to what we find today in the liberal mindset, is it not? Okay, they are, they are indignant about causes, okay, morally indignant about things, but you can't tell them what to do. Okay, they, they're very much about the individual, which is about self. Okay, and treat people as individuals. Okay, and, and yet there was a contradiction here. He says that, that they let other people have their views, and yet in a sense he, he doesn't let other people. You're indignant against them. Here's the, uh, um, <clears throat> the authoritarian personality, the one that has the problem, the one that has the, uh, the real issue, uh, is, guess what? It's the Christian. You know, his authority is from the Bible. He has moral absolutes. Uh, he says things are absolutely right or wrong. He's not for the individual as much as for other people because Jesus said, what? You put others before yourself, okay? So the antithesis is Christianity. Um, and this has come over into our youth culture. And uh, just one quote here, page 61. Sykes says, Perhaps we might choose to envision the quote-unquote youth culture not as a culture of young people, but as a culture that refuses to grow up. Okay, culture that refuses to grow up. Um, with due respect, because you're the only one here, so forgive me. Um, and I, I don't, not, it's not aimed at you at all, but, but um, we have all been teenagers. And we all knew how to fix the world when we were 17 and 18. Okay? We could see clearly, and grown-ups, the adults, they couldn't see clearly, could they? Okay? If 
that mentality doesn't change, I feel like telling a joke, but um, you become a a college teacher. No. (laughs) Um, If that mentality uh, doesn't change, you know, then you get this this uh, hubris, this it's ignorance, okay, but it's pride and it, and it's uh, you thinking that you have um, every right to be the kind of person you choose to be. Nobody tells you what is moral for you, and yet you are righteously indignant about these causes, the environment. Some guy just burnt himself to death today over fossil fuels. He used fossil fuels to kill himself. And it's like, I'm sorry, it's a terrible thing, and so on. It's a tragedy, that that suicide is a tragedy. But more tragic than that is that it is utterly pointless. Utterly pointless as a a statement. Um, Based on what? Based on a person that really just is didn't grow up, you know, um, who just believed a bunch of, a, a bunch of lies and he was an advocate for all kinds of what the Bible called immoral issues and thought he was making a moral statement. He wasn't making a moral statement, he was making an immoral statement. That's the world, uh, you know, as sad as that, that episode is, it actually perfectly um, conceptualizes the, the problem of worldly thinking. And uh, I want to leave you perhaps with that because if he'd have listened to God who made him, who loved him, if he'd have put others before himself, if he'd have allowed God God's standards of morality to be his standards of morality that he was attaining to instead of throwing those off. Um, he wouldn't have got righteously indignant so that he killed himself over something so stupid as fossil fuels. I mean, if he wanted to do, make a statement, go over to China and do it. They're the ones who were burning it, all the fossil fuels, or go over to India and do it. They would have been ignored. You know, but it was such a, a childish thing to do in, in a sense. But that's the world. And people, just like Rebecca here, and just like ourselves, and just like counselees that we will deal with, they, they have to break out of that mentality, that me mentality, and uh, they have to get under the word of God. Okay, some final questions and then we will close. Ah, sorry, yes. Okay, did everyone hear that? Okay. Uh, should a female counsel a female? Should a female counsel a married couple? No to the second one. Why not? That's right. That's right. No, a female should not be counseling um, a, uh, a married couple. That is a, a man's job. 
Um, scripture is very clear about that. If you're using the Bible to teach somebody, that's not open. Okay. If it's a, if it's a, a man, I would even question if it's a, if it's open to a woman to teach another woman in that setting. Okay. In that formal setting. In an informal setting, then that's, that's just fellowship coming alongside a person. So in a more formal setting, then, you know, just be careful because what, what's happening actually, and it's kind of disturbing, although it's, it's, it's to be expected, is that we're getting a proliferation of women counselors and even women biblical counselors. And of course you understand why they want to do it and, and you, you, um, I mean, God bless them that, you know, many of them do some great work, but they can't counsel men. Do you see? They can counsel women as long as it, it, they're not giving them the kind of counsel that would cut across the man's authority in the, in the marriage. Do you see? So they would, might say to that lady, they might say, okay, this is what you're telling me he's like. I don't know. I haven't met him. Okay. But you're telling me he's like this and so on. So this is how you deal with it. Okay. This is what you're to do to deal with it. And most of that is going to be respect him. Give him honor. Okay. Um, yes. Well, like, you know, that you're actually setting a time, a date to come and sit down and deal with this issue rather than it's just something that arises in a conversation. Uh, anything else? All right. Thank you. I hope that was helpful. We didn't get to the will again, which means that next time we're going to, we will, we're going to start off with the will, okay? All right. <laughs>